Thank you, team. Set a fire. Boy, I pray that the Lord does that for each of us. Sets a fire. Doesn't let us just live in the ordinary. Sometimes the ordinary is great, huh? But if you get stuck in the ordinary for a long period of time, it's hard to get extraordinary. (laughs) And our God is extraordinary, isn't He? I'm thankful that uh, you're here for the start of the Nahum series. Before we watch, every time we do a new series, we we show the Bible Project video. You know how we do those introductions. So some of you are excited. You're here on the Sunday. You get to watch a cartoon. Uh, You always love that. So uh, you'll enjoy that. But before we get there, I thought I would just do a little bit of work. Uh, I'll have you pray with me. Would you pray with me as we get into the book of Nahum? You just pray this prayer. You don't have to say anything out loud. But if you just say, God... Since there's something you want me to hear, I'm willing to listen. Just offer that prayer. God, since there's something you want me to hear, I am willing to listen. And God, I do pray that you'd be glorified. I pray that everyone hearing this message would be edified. And I pray that Satan would be horrified in Jesus' name. Amen. Before reading the text for today, I want to give some background. you got to have the background material. Um, so before you even show that video, I need my, my, my slides back up. I'm going to do a couple of the slides first, and then we'll go to that video. The video says a lot of cool things, so I want to talk first before they get to say all the cool things. Our big idea, if you see it on the screen whenever it's up and ready to go, I have got nothing on the back. I don't know if that's something wrong, or, um, but the video... Uh, was coming up is going to tell us that the big idea is God is just and deals with sin accordingly. If you read through the book of Nahum, maybe you're here this morning and you think of Nahum is just like any other book. No, it's it's not. It's a pretty grim book. It's not an exciting book. You you don't read the book of Nahum and finish and say, I am just so uplifted because every chapter and verse is about God's judgment. And we typically don't think of God's judgment as a positive thing, but I am challenged as a pastor to preach all of God's word, not just the easy ones. And Nahum is part of God's word. And I want to bring it to you because I think it's in the canon of scripture because God intended it to be there. And what I've discovered is the short chapters of Nahum should for the believer, should for the believer be a comfort. Hard to understand, isn't it? How could could God's judgment and wrath, you're going to hear the words wrath, avenging, how could that be positive and uplifting? Well, for the believer, it should be because we have a God who says, I will not let wrong prevail. I will not let sin prevail. Some of you are upset and you're living in a world where you're like not happy, uh, especially as old timers. Anybody older than me, you and you, you know, this was a Christian nation founded on Christian principles and we think everybody should be praying and doing everything. And you know what? You're living in a world and the winds have changed. We can complain and we could moan and we could wish for the old days when the New York Times used to print the passage of Scripture that the nation was supposed to read. That actually happened. The New York Times used to print the passage of Scripture every week for people to read. I mean, you'd have your, your uh, what's that little crossword puzzle people do? But you could also look up the Scripture and know that the whole nation's reading. That's where we were. We're not there any longer. So you have to make a choice. Am I going to pout and moan and groan? And be miserable? Or am I going to look to the character of who God is? Let me tell you the worst thing that can happen is if you as a believer decide it's your job to fix it 
And you're going to let everybody know how miserable they're making you feel. And you're going to let everybody know it was so much better in the olden days. And, and we're going to fight the system. Fight the system. No. I'm here to tell you, God lets us know in Scripture He will deal with the wrong. He'll deal with the wrong. It's His job. All right, if you're willing to go there with me, raise your right hand. Just raise your right hand in the air and everybody just say, it's not my job. I know it. Some of you, like, you have a hard time of giving up power of the control of the whole universe. I know. You're like, I don't want to say that, but it's not your job. And God makes it clear that bad people will do bad things. And He, the Lord God, will make sure that every sin is punished. Not my job. I'll abdicate that role. Thank you, Lord. So we're going to learn that by reading through the whole book of Nahum. Nahum's a prophet. Let me quickly give you this. Who's Nahum? Nahum is a prophet from the region of Judah. Don't forget the tribes uh, in the northern and all this stuff had happened. And there's captivity happening right now. The Assyrians have taken over. And, and they're a terrible, mean group of people. When they rule over you, they make it miserable for you. And so most of Israel is in this terrible time that, pro- that Nahum rises up as a prophet. The Bible says he was an Elkoshite, which means he's from Elkosh. Uh, but we have no idea where Alkosh was. We have not found Alkosh yet. And that's what's fun for me. I'm telling you, I don't get nervous when somebody says, well, the Bible says that he's from Alkosh and we haven't found the ancient city of Alkosh. As if that, that's some reason to disprove scripture. Just wait. There's shovels hitting the dirt over in Egypt and Israel all the time. And every time a shovel hits the dirt, new things are found. And can I tell you this? Nothing has ever been found that disagrees with scripture. It only confirms. So I'm not afraid. Let them dig. One of these days you're going to hear in the news, they found the ancient city of Elkosh. Who, who, who knew? We know. Actually, we don't know where Elkosh was. Honestly, if you look at Scripture, I think the thing that makes most sense to me is, have you ever heard of the city of Capernaum? Capernaum? That actually means the city of Nahum. Nahum? Capernaum? It actually means the city of Nahum. It could be Capernaum, which would be up in Galilee, but we don't know. So we just don't know where Elkoshite is or Elkosh is, but he's an Elkoshite. And he's a poet. Gotta love these Old Testament prophets who are also poets. And so he writes in a very poetic style, but he's a prophet. And he wrote the book around 650 BC. This is 100 years after the book of Jonah. Jonah was sent to the same town and told to preach the gospel, and the people would repent. He didn't want to go. He did go. They did repent. His worst nightmare is these terrible people came to, to, to faith in Christ. Or not Christ yet, in God. They came to faith in God. And so Jonah's an upset prophet. He didn't want these evil, ugly people to be right with God. He, he knew it. And he even says, God, hated that you're so patient and kind, Right? None of us should ever feel that way about God. So this is a hundred years after Jonah came and preached and the people repented. And guess what? Not only have they gone back on that faith, back on that promise, they're worse than they've ever been. Their evil has doubled. And so the book of Nahum is written for Nahum to come to God's people and say, yes, you've been conquered and living under this authority all these years, but God hasn't forgotten their sin and God will call them to account. Not your job. Some of y'all need to do it again. Raise your right hand. You didn't mean it the first time you said it. It's not my job. 
Now, you're going to mean it by the end of this sermon. It's not our job. God says, I've got this. His theme is God's judgment on the town of Nineveh. Remember Jonah went to Nineveh? By the way, uh, in, in the 17th century, they had not found the city of Nineveh. Kind of like we haven't found Elkosh yet. And people would actually say, oh, we've never found the town of Nineveh. The Bible's just made up stories. And then 1845, trouble hit the ground. They found the ancient ruins of Nineveh. Nineveh was the head city, the chief city of the Assyrians. And so now what we've got is Jonah went. We know what happened. We're 100 years later. God's people are being tormented. And Nahum shows up as a prophet to tell of God's judgment on Nineveh, but for God's people's sake. This is why we have to preach through a book like Nahum. Not to, so many people get caught up on the fierceness and the wrath of God. Don't forget, this is for God's people to know God is in control. We walk away from this story of judgment, we should feel comforted. Let's roll the thing on Nahum and watch the Bible Project's good job they do on introducing the book. Happy cartoon time. The Book of the Prophet Nahum. This short prophetic book is a collection of poems announcing the downfall of one of Israel's worst oppressors, the ancient empire of Assyria, and its capital city, Nineveh. The Assyrians arose as one of the world's first great empires, and their expansion into Israel resulted in the total destruction and exile of the northern kingdom and its tribes. The Assyrian armies were violent and destructive on a scale that the world had never seen before. And so Israel and its neighbors were awaiting the downfall of Assyria, which eventually came in the year 612 BC. The Babylonians rose up and began a rebellion that overtook Nineveh and brought down the Assyrian Empire. And so chapter 2 depicts the fall of Nineveh in vivid poetry, and chapter 3 then explores the downfall of the empire as a whole. But this book isn't just an angry tirade against Israel's enemies. The introductory chapter shows us that there is way, way more going on here. The book opens with an incomplete alphabet poem that begins by describing a powerful appearance of God's glory. It's very similar to how the previous book, Micah, began and how the next book, Habakkuk, is going to conclude. And it's God, the all-powerful creator, coming to confront the nations and bring his justice on their evil. And the poem opens by quoting from the famous line of God's self-description after the golden calf incident in the book of Exodus chapter 34. The Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power. He won't leave evil unpunished. And so the rest of the poem goes back and forth, contrasting the fate of the arrogant, violent nations with the fate of God's faithful remnant. When God brings down all the arrogant empires, he will provide refuge for those who humble themselves before him. Now, here's what's really interesting, is that you thought this book was only about Assyria, but Nahum actually nowhere mentions Nineveh or Assyria in chapter 1. And when he describes the downfall of the bad guys, he uses Isaiah's language about the fall of Babylon, which happened much later in history. And not only that, Nahum also describes the downfall of the bad guys as good news for the remnant of God's people. It's a direct allusion to Isaiah's good news about the downfall of Babylon. And so all these little details from chapter 1, they come together to make a key point. 
For Nahum, the fall of Nineveh is being presented as an example, as an image of how God is at work in history in every age, how he won't allow the arrogant or violent empires of our world to endure forever. So the message of Nahum is actually very similar to that of Daniel. Assyria stands in a long line of violent empires throughout history, and Nineveh's fate is a memorial to God's commitment to bring down the violent and the arrogant in every age. With this perspective from the opening chapter, the book then returns to its focus on Assyria. And so chapter 2 describes the Battle of Nineveh and the overthrow of the city in progressive stages. So first we see the front line of Babylonian soldiers, and then we read about the charge of the chariots, and then the chaos on the city walls as the city is breached, then the slaughter of Nineveh's people, then the plundering of the city. Chapter 3 goes on to describe the results of the city's downfall for the empire as a whole. So Nahum begins by announcing a woe upon the city whose kings built it with the blood of the innocent. It's an image of how injustice was built into the very system that made Assyria so successful. But their violence has sown the seeds of their own destruction, and so Assyria will fall before Babylon. The book concludes with a taunt against the fallen king of Assyria. He's stricken with a fatal wound, and from among all the nations that he once oppressed, no one comes to help him. Rather, they sing and celebrate his destruction. And that's how the book ends. Now, this is a gloomy book. But it's important to see how Nahum's message addresses the tragic and perpetual cycles of human violence and oppression in every age. Human history is filled with tribes and nations elevating themselves and using violence to take what they want, resulting in the death of the innocent. And the book of Nahum uses Assyria and Babylon as examples to tell us that God is grieved and that he cares about the death of the innocent and that his goodness and his justice compel him to orchestrate the downfall of oppressive nations. And God's judgment on evil is good news, unless, of course, you happen to be Assyria. Which brings us all the way back to the conclusion of that opening poem in chapter 1, which tells us that the Lord is good and a refuge in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. And so the little book of Nahum invites every reader to humble themselves before God's justice and to trust that in his time he will bring down the oppressors of every time and place. And that's what the book of Nahum is all about. That's what I said. But they say it so well. Let's open the Bible and look at the book of Nahum. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Obviously, in these four weeks, we're not going to be able to cover every word of the book of Nahum, even though it's a short book. I'm going to take sections and we'll go through them. But I encourage you to read through the entire narrative on your own. This morning, I will read, and I'm going to read out of the NIV at first, uh, but then I'm going to switch over to uh, the Holcomb uh, Bible, which uh, does a good job of translating this. But we can follow along if you have the NIV. Follow along as I read. Nahum 1, 1 through 8. A prophecy concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither 
and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Wow, I love that. To the realm of darkness. Again, you might be asking, how can we make something positive out of God's wrath? Well, you as believers need to kind of wrap your heads around this because so many times I hear even Christians ashamed of the Old Testament because God was angry. Like God was in a bad mood. We like the Jesus Testament because Jesus is the nicer, kinder God, right? But you need to understand God is God. Say that with me. God is God. One thing we know about his character, Scripture teaches us, he does not change. From age to age, he remains the same. It is not that Jesus came and God was in a better mood. God is God. You need to understand who he is. I'm afraid that in our culture today, we're so uh, hesitant to look at the Old Testament and see the wrath of God, and we only want to focus on the, the happy, positive things, that we mislead people. People, I don't want to lead you astray. You need to know God. And God is God, and he is a God of wrath, and he will not let sin go unpunished. So don't delay. (laughs) Don't hesitate. God's wrath will take place. His patience is how we're enduring still yet today. But his patience will not be forever. I wish I had it today. I didn't do it. I don't know if it's even safe. I was going to put one of those propane burners. Is that bad to do inside anybody? Was, is, would that be bad? Is that like going to make us pass out or something? I didn't do it because I was afraid I would, you know, I don't want people passing out. But I was going to put a big propane fire and a big pot. We have a pot downstairs. I should have brought it up. It's a big silver pot. Um, this big. I don't know. Oakwood used to do some soup something or I don't know what it was. It's a huge pot. I thought about putting water in it and putting it on that fire and letting it sit there as a visual for you today. Because you know when you put a big pot of water on a fire, it doesn't boil right away, does it? And and it's true, I've been in the kitchen before, a watched pot never boils. If you watch it, it never boils. And and I was going to put it on that fire and let you know that this is an understanding of God. God is being patient. Still yet, he's being patient. He doesn't boil over like we do. We boil over in our anger. God doesn't do that, but don't get us wrong. He will boil. When we boil over, we just get in hot water. Amen? Anybody boil over and you end up in hot water? You don't want to do that, right? God never boils over. He's never abusive. But he is God. And you cannot forget that. That is key. Nahum teaches us this fact that God is going to punish all sin. So let's move forward and talk about verses 1 through 8. I'm going to switch over to that Holcomb Bible. If you haven't uh, got that, you can get it online and read it. Um, um, some of the words I'm going to use, I like the way that they translated this. Number one, eight characteristics of a comforting God. Where do you get comfort out of this passage? Well, there's eight things that the Bible tells us about the character of God that should bring you and I comfort. Number one, 
God is jealous. Verse 2, the Lord is jealous. You know, I like the word zealous better than the word jealous. I, I understand it and it's scripturally correct, but we've ruined the word since this time. Humanity's emotions kind of overruled this word jealous. When we think of the word jealous, we think of a human emotion, suspicion, distrust, rivalry, or the fear of loss. So when we use the word jealous, you put it in a human context, and all of a sudden God looks pretty needy and pretty, you know, pretty weird, pretty creepy, right? You're like, God is a jealous God. Well, that means he's afraid of losing you. Friends, Oh, don't leave here today thinking that God is jealous of you because he's afraid of losing you. I love the song. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree. Well, the artistry of that song is beautiful. But the word is right. He's jealous, but don't get it in human terms. He's not jealous because he's afraid he's going to lose you. Big note, he doesn't need anything. One of the key things about our God is he needs nothing. Therefore, he's not afraid of losing anything. It's just that we've turned this word jealous into a relationship thing. You know, and, and, and oh, you generation today. Where's the young generation? The, the, you know, got any teenagers in the house this morning? All oh, your songs. I don't know your songs. I don't know what a tame impala is. But I, I, I do know that we had good music, man, back in the 80s. Amen. And we wrote about jealousy, human jealousy, right? I remember a girl broke my heart in college, dumped me flat for the star basketball player on the team. That was horrible. You know, she takes off and gets better. She got the upgrade. I'm left in the dust. And I remember I would walk around campus and I'd sing this. You remember the anthem, Thank God for Chicago. If you see me walking by and the tears are in my eyes, look away. Baby, look away. Don't look at me. I don't want you to see me this way. Anybody with me this morning? You remember that? And we even wrote anthems about stalking. Where, where did I, I wrote it down. I wrote the words down today. Remember this one? Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. That's criminal today. It's criminal. It was hot 10. This is the top 10 song. Every single day, every single word you say, every game you play, every night you stay, I'll be watching you. You want to sing it? Oh, can't you Stop it. Just stop it. Don't get carried away. You belong to me. (laughs) Right? That's jealousy. The song is about jealousy and stalking. It's wrong. But we had good anthems back in the day. That's why I don't like the word jealous, although it's the right word. Don't, don't get me wrong. Don't, don't leave today and say the pastor thinks the Bible's wrong. No, the Bible's right. We ruin the word by, by, by humanizing it. To deify the word jealous, it's more like the word zealous. He is all over wanting you to stay in a relationship with him. Not that he needs you. It's more like a, uh, the illustration I read this week in a commentary was, like a father who has this young child and they're near a snake that could harm them. What's the father's thought? Well, deified, it's jealousy. It's, it's not that he's, he's afraid uh, about a relationship with his child. He's jealous. He's, he doesn't want the child away from his care because he knows the child's going to get harmed. That's the kind of jealousy God has for you and me. Yes, 
he is jealous for me. But not like a weird relationship with a fear of loss. It's not that. He's jealous for you. He doesn't want you to have any gods before him because he knows it will harm you. He's like a loving father who who wants to keep you close, but not in that stalking, weird way. Human love, no. It's a God love who cares so much that they use the word jealous here, which I like the word zealous better. His concern is not that he will be hurt, but that we will be hurt away from him. Isn't that different than human? Human jealousy is, you're going to hurt me. It's all about, I don't want to be hurt. But God's jealousy is not about him being hurt. He's concerned that you would be hurt. So he's jealous for you to stay close to him. The second thing, right in the same verse, verse 2, the Lord's jealous. He's an avenging God. I, I like this one because today we, we've got the Avengers, right? You watch the movies with the Avengers. What are the Avengers? These super, I don't know if they're all superheroes. Um, some of them are just rich people. It's like Batman. The difference between Batman and Superman. Superman's got supernatural powers. Batman's got a lot of money and a really cool belt. You know, and, and we can probably relate more to uh, uh, the Avengers that are just uh, able to buy cool toys, right? But their goal and mission is this word avenging. What does that mean? Avenging is a wrong done to the defenseless and weak. That's what God's talking about here. He's going to avenge his people who were defenseless and weak, and the Assyrians came and took them. So God is going to be an avenging God. Because he cares about the defenseless and the weak. God is avenging for his people, this passage tells us, but also it's against his enemies. And and I think that's where I would point out to you, don't be an enemy of God. Have you made peace with God yet? Don't remain an enemy of God because yes, he is patient and he is loving, but his patience is coming to an end. Not like the pot that's gonna boil over and he's he's gonna all of a sudden lose his top. He's gonna boil over. No, no. But the fire is there, and it's heating up. And eventually our God's going to say, enough. Don't be an enemy of God today. He is avenging for his people, but he's against his enemies. And that's where the next thing comes up. It says that he is wrathful. I like the Holcomb because the Holcomb says, the Lord is jealous in avenging, the Lord takes vengeance, and is fierce in wrath. Fierce in wrath. How could that be comforting to you and I to know that God is fierce in wrath? Well, it's interesting, the word Baal, Baal. You've heard Baal in the Bible before? That word actually means the word Lord, not L-O-R-D, all capitalized. Whenever you're in the Bible and you see the word Lord and it's all capitals, L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that Lord means Yahweh. That's the official name of God. But when you see Lord, just capital L, then O-R-D, that means Master, or over. And this word fierce in wrath has that play on words of Baal, Lord, and you need to know God is Lord. God is master over everything. Um, not probably many of you are teachers. I know, Aaliyah, you would understand. It's frustrating if you're a teacher in front of a classroom and they don't respect you and they don't do what you say, right? Wouldn't it be awful? And, and as the Lord of the class, <laughs> you're tasked with being in charge. And so your anger burns because they're being disrespectful. Let me put it into an easy term. How many of you are parents in the room? As a parent over a child, don't you burn 
when you're being disrespected and they're not listening to you, they're not obeying you. If you're an owner of a company and your employees do not listen to you and do it, you understand what I'm trying to get at here. What the Bible is telling us here through Nahum is God is Lord. And so when people disobey and do not honor him, they dishonor him. Yes, he is a God of fierceness and wrath. How does that comfort us? Well, again, living in our world today as a believer, you might say it's not fair. You know, I, I don't like the way I'm put in a corner and I can't say anything about God in, in a workplace. Or I might be, and, and you might be upset that the world isn't like you'd like it to be, but I would tell you this. Trust in the Lord. He's going to make all things right. He is the God that's fierce in wrath and will deal with those things. Wrathful does not mean he's out of control or blows his top. So when we read through Nahum, people are going to ask you, what about the God of the Old Testament who is vengeful and wrathful? And they say all those things like they're negative things. You need to come back and say, no, they're there to reassure us that God will deal with it. That's why this whole series is called Just Love. Everybody say Just Love. Not Just Love, right? It's not like uh, the Beatles song, right? Uh, what, what is the love song? All you need is love. Bum, 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 bum. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. Not, not really. If it's human love, that's not all you need, right? The Bible is telling us uh, that our God is a God that does not blow his top. He's never out of control, but he is a God of wrath. Then we follow up with the verse we like to hear, he's slow to anger. Isn't it good to know that God is Lord and will judge however he's slow to anger? Those two things should comfort you and comfort me. And I want to point out something. Jonah went and preached the word. The people repented and then went back to their sinfulness. And it's been a hundred years. Those, those religious people are like, God, how come they're prevailing? It's not fair. It's not right. We're good people and they're the bad people. Why are they winning? For the same reason you and I should be grateful that the Lord is patient with us. Even though the Assyrians were awful people, for a hundred years had gone against God, God is slow to anger. But that does not mean he will not act. We should be grateful that our God will act, but he's patient, slow to anger. He doesn't boil over. We boil over and end up in hot water. But the very next words are God is very powerful. Let me read it again. Verse three, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. So friends, I love how the the prophet was making this clear. Don't get him wrong. Don't just say, oh, he's slow to anger, so he'll never. No, no, he will judge sin. And there's something in us that wants wrong to be made right. Amen? I I don't know where you were. Some of you weren't even born yet. It's hard to even imagine my son Joshua wasn't even born on 9-11 when it took place. He wasn't even born yet. But we can all, those of us who are around, do you remember that evening after the the tragedy? Do you remember uh, the president got on that load of rubble? Somebody handed him a bullhorn. There was thousands of people on New York streets. And he grabbed the bullhorn. He started talking. Remember, you could hear the guy in the back yell, we can't hear you. You know, I don't know who that guy was. He should have been the speaker. You could hear him. We can't hear you. And what did the president say without missing a beat? 
Well, the people who did this are going to hear from us soon. And all Americans, all Americans went, yes. Not that because we, we love violence, because we seek justice, don't we? Don't we seek justice? And when the wrong prevails, oh, we hate it. It burns us. That's why movies like The Avengers sell millions of tickets. Because it's a story of, of the hopeless and the helpless having somebody avenge them. And this is what Nahum's about. It's not just God is angry, God is wrathful, God is fear. It's not that. It's in the context of he's going to make things right. And sin will be paid for. So that's why Nahum follows up. He's slow to anger, but he's very powerful. Uh, those of you who, uh, Narnia, you know the Narnia series? You know, Aslan. I love, it's my favorite line of that whole trilogy. Aslan is the lion, represents Jesus. And, and the little girl asks at one point, sees Aslan, this big fierce lion, and she's like, is he, is, he, is he dangerous? And the person responded, yes, he's dangerous, but he's good. That's the key. He's good. So the Bible tells us that God is very powerful, and that's something you don't want to mess with. He's the power of a lion, but be thankful that he's slow to anger. He's mighty in power, but be thankful he's gracious. And then from there it goes on to a couple of things we'll finish up. He expresses his power over nature. There's a section here, uh, you know, verses 4 through verse 6, very poetic. He talks about his power over nature. When God is, is visualized in the Old Testament, often it's by the whirlwind. And so you see that in, in the scripture. He talks about that. His path is in the whirlwind and the storm. Clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. He makes rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel, they wither. Even the flowers of Lebanon wither. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt the earth trembles in the whole world and everyone who lives in it. I love that passage. Nahum is just saying, God is powerful. God is powerful. Don't get it wrong. He's powerful over nature. He expresses his power over his enemies. In verse 6, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. But don't forget, the people reading this are saying, but it's been 100 years. Yes. We just wanted to remind you, God is going to deal with this. It's not your job. Amen? Put your hand up. Tell him, it's not my job. God is the one who's fierce in wrath, and your timing is not his timing. We have a hard time imagining 100 years. I won't even be here to watch it. 100 years? That's why you've got to have faith in God and be thankful for who he is. He has power over his enemies. His power expresses his power through the goodness to his people. In verse 7, the Lord is good. That's, I love that. That's what follows up his power. God is, is just. He has a sense of uh, the rightness of God. He will make all things right. God's righteousness demands that the guilt resulting from sin cannot be overlooked. Proverbs eleven twenty one. if we have that on the side screen. Be sure of this, the wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will go free. That's what Nahum's reminding these people. God will deal with sin. He is just, so it will be paid for. I'm thankful for that. If you've ever experienced violent crime, you understand the, the power of a victim's impact, going to court and speaking uh, so that the criminal gets his full time. I mean, it's a powerful thing. If you, I, my sister was raped. And I remember as a young boy, just wanting him not to get away with this. 
and, and wanting the power of the system and, and right. I wanted it bad. He is just. And then the Bible tells us he is good. In verse 7, the Lord is good. After all of that, verses 1 through 6, all about the fierceness of God, we find out he's good. Why is he good? How is he good? He's faithful. Psalm 107, 1 and 2. Give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. He's good. He's faithful. He will not leave things undone. It might not be in our time, in your timing, that you wish it would be done, but God is faithful. He's good because he's a stronghold in which we can anchor our soul. Let me read that. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. I I love the idea of an anchor. Any boating people? Got people love to go boating. I I love to go boating. I don't like to go on big lakes. I took a uh, 17-foot speedboat out on Lake Superior once. Never do that again. I don't think I got 100 yards from shore, and I said, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. Itty bitty boat and a big big lake, you know, and it just didn't feel right. But I loved a boat. But one thing I struggle with every summer is we take my father-in-law's boat onto this lake, and we we got our certain spots on this lake where we love to just float, right? So I always put the anchor down so we can swim off the boat, and it's a beautiful spot. And so I always throw the anchor, and then I and I try to make sure that it grabbed it. Okay, okay, okay. But it's all sand on the bottom. You know what happens, right? inevitably, every time we do this, and my family will tell me, they'll they'll tell you, my dad is the worst anchor person ever. The boat never stays put. It's not my fault, people. It's sandy. You put the anchor in that sand, and I'm telling you what, you jump in the water and you start swimming, and the boat's 40 feet away. It it started blowing, and the anchor gave way, and it just let loose. I hate it when you got an anchor, but there's nothing for it to anchor to. Some of you call God your, your anchor, right? He's not your anchor. Your soul needs an anchor, but it needs to grab something. And, and what it holds is, is sure and true. It grabs a hold. Now, there are times at the lake when I throw that anchor, and it grabs something. And that boat doesn't move. And we swim for an hour. And then you know what happens? I can't get the anchor out of the water. It grabbed a tree. It grabbed a tree. And I'm in like 30 feet of water. And I'm like pulling, 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 pulling a rope. And then I got to go diving. And I got to release the... And and you hate it. But at the same time, that's why the boat didn't move. Yeah, I had an anchor. But an anchor doesn't do any good if it doesn't grab a hold to something strong. A stronghold. Oh, your heart needs an anchor. And that anchor needs a stronghold. And that's what the Bible is telling us. It should be a God of comfort. I know I'm trying my hardest as a pastor today to tell you. These are some mighty, fierce, scary words about God, wrath, vengeance, avenging it all, fierce and ah, fire. There's all sorts of scary words here about God. And you could be drawn away by saying, oh my goodness, look at God. He doesn't look so good. No, friends, he is good. It's good that our God will punish sin. It is good that our God will make sure that justice prevails. These are good things, and that's why the, the people were reassured. Not only is he good, but he's caring. A stronghold in the day of distress, he cares for those who take refuge in him. Eight things about God today. All these things are true. He's the God of all comfort. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxiety in him because he cares for you. Aren't you thankful we have a God who is mighty in power, dangerous in the sense that he is over all things, and yet he's good, slow to anger, patient, 
and he cares. When you walk out today after hearing a, a passage of woe, everybody say woe. <laughs> you hear a passage of woe and it could, de- it could actually bring you down and I don't want it to. I want it to lift your soul today. Know that you've got a God who's a good God and he cares for you. And the fact that he doesn't call you an enemy any longer, if you've asked him to save you and come into your life as Savior and Lord, then you're no longer an enemy of his. Have faith. God's enemies will face judgment. But if you've come to him, he no longer calls you an enemy. The Bible says he calls you friend. Once an enemy, now seated at your table. That's the beautiful thing. God invites you to his table. How do you know you're friends with somebody? If you have good friends, I'm going to guarantee you some things this morning. If you have good friends, number one, you'll end up eating with them. It's just true. You spend enough time with them, you're going to spend some time over some food. So who do you eat with, right? The other thing that you'll know if you really know somebody, you see them naked. That's just a fact. I'm sorry. It's just true. God sees you naked, friend. He does. You are laid bare before him. And he invites you to his table as a friend, no longer enemies, but accepted. When you read a passage like that, it should give you comfort to know, number one, you'll never face that wrath. Amen? You can know that today. I hope you do know that. You'll never have to face that wrath. The Bible says in the New Testament, for there's no condemnation for those who believe. If you believe today, you can read this passage and say that that is my God. He will avenge sinfulness. And his wrath is fierce and nobody can stop it. Rocks break in front of him. I love that. It's a Thor thing. You know, it's, it's like you can see Thor, but God's much bigger than that. The mountains melt away. That's my God, but he's also good, loving and kind. Well, that's just the start of the book of Nahum. I hope you'll stick with us, keep reading it, and you can read it and know that these things that are kind of scary are also positive things for us.